Um, hey, this morning, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. That's in the New Testament in your Bible. It's to the right-hand side. Um, it'll also be in your bulletin and up on the screen behind us. But you want to keep that close because we're going to be referring back to it a lot. Um, so keep that in front of you. But as you're turning there, I would like to tell you about one of the things that gives me both great delight and great frustration in my life. And that's our dog, our dog Bodley which we recently took with us on our trip to see Christie's family in Canada and Michigan. And we thought we should stop off at Niagara Falls, particularly on the Canadian side, because it's like the whole horseshoe of waterfalls. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's awesome. And we thought we probably shouldn't leave our dog in the car. So we took Bodley with us to Niagara Falls, which is a huge tourist destination with tons of people and vendors and lots going on. So I'd I'd like to tell you what I think was going on in her dog brain as she experienced Niagara Falls. I think it was something like this of, look, I'm not in the car anymore. There's grass. I should go to the bathroom. People, look at all the people. They smell good. That kid's petting me. He has an ice cream cone. Maybe I can lick it. Squirrel, water. Ooh, that water smells good. Maybe I can go in the water. That looks like far down. I probably shouldn't go to the water. Squirrel. I think that's what was going on in her mind. Just overwhelmed. There are all the things. Well, I tell you that because that's kind of what Paul's doing. In this passage, uh, particularly we're going to be in verses 1 through 14, and 3 through 14 in the Greek is basically one long run-on sentence. There's no punctuation, and Paul's just like piling stuff on top of each other. And you need to know this, but also this, and this is really important. Hey, and look at that, and don't forget this over here. So it may feel a little bit like, whoa, okay, Paul, you're just, you're just coming at me with all the things. And that's a little bit what he's doing. He's, he's seeing the gospel, and is kind of so enraptured by it, he's just pointing stuff out. I'm like, you've got to notice this and this. And by the way, it touches on this and also that. So that's going to happen a little bit as we read. But there's one unifying theme that drives right down through the whole passage that I want you to listen for. Notice that all the times it says, in Christ, through Christ, in him, in the beloved. It's something like a dozen times in 14 verses. So, so keep your ear out for that. That unifying theme as we read together. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So you got all that, right? You know, everything that's going on in the passage, we can go home. Good. Well, there's a lot there, so let's pray uh, and ask God to meet with us and to teach us from his word this morning. God, thank you that uh, you leave us your word and that it is alive and it is active uh, and it's true. It is trustworthy. Uh, God, no human is able to adequately address uh, the richness of this passage. So we ask for your spirit to be here, to be active, uh, to teach us um, the beauty of your word, the beauty of the truth that you proclaim about us, about yourself. Um, So we ask that both for our good as ones that you love uh, and for your glory so that it might be known throughout the world. Would you do this? Uh, We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So a little bit today we're going to talk about heirs and orphans. And the most, I think, well-known orphan story of my generation and below is Harry Potter. Bet you didn't see that coming, huh? Harry Potter is the best-known, probably, orphan story of, of a younger generation. Also happens to be, I find, very entertaining books. But when we first meet Harry in the story, Harry is sleeping in his bedroom. Well, that's, that may be a bit of a stretch. He's sleeping in the cupboard underneath the staircase in his aunt and uncle's house. And the first scene we see Harry, he's awoken by his uh, cousin, Dudley. And Dudley awakens Harry by going down the stairs, finding the spot right above Harry's head and giving a, a couple of those real good stomps. Then Harry gets up and does what he normally does on a day, make all of them breakfast before going about his chores in the household. And he's kind of frequently told, you know, you really are just kind of a waste of space here. You are such a burden. And he's treated like a really burdensome servant. And told a lot, you're worthless. You are such an inconvenience. Counter that with Dudley. Dudley is told and believes that the world is God's gift to him. He's what you might call entitled. The world owes Dudley happiness. It owes him all the joy that he can pull out of life. And if it doesn't give it to him, he will let you know and expect the powers to be to rectify that within the first three to four seconds right now. We see that really clearly at at Dudley's birthday party. He is excited. He scans over his mountain of presents, looking cunningly, and he sees something's not quite right. And he turns shrewdly to his parents and says, how many presents are here? His dad assures him, well, there's 36. I counted them up myself. And with great levels of frustration and incredulity, he says, 36? Last year I had 37. You're trying to shortchange me. How dare you? His dad assures him, no, no, no. But some of them are much bigger than last year. Dudley's having none of that. I don't care how big they are. You are giving me less than that. There's 36. Are you serious? To which his mother swoops in to rescue the day and says, Oh no, Duddykins, it's fine. We'll go out and buy two more today. Everything will be great. Dudley thinks the world owes him. 
and that maybe he's God's gift to the world. When we don't have the correct story of who we are, of what we have, of why we're here, we're prone to both errors. We're prone to forgetting who we are and and maybe starting to hear some of the messages that, you know, you're not really good enough. You know, if if you were a little more successful, maybe, or maybe, you know, if you dropped a couple more pounds, Maybe if you were more influential or your family was more uh, you know, prestigious or important, then maybe, maybe you'd be okay. And sometimes we can start to believe, you know, what am I doing here? I'm not, I'm, I'm just taking up air. I'm not that great. I am kind of worthless. Or on the other end, we can think, you know, the world owes me. It owes me happiness. It owes me joy. It owes me all that it can muster. And when I don't get it, I am not happy and I am not okay. And I get frustrated and angry thinking, I deserve better than this. Well, thankfully, God's word very kindly and very gently addresses us in both places and everywhere in between by reminding us that we are heirs of God. And so we're going to look at today, what does it mean to live like an heir in three different places? And then kind of what does it look like when we forget that? So we're going to look at three simple questions. There's no, I'm not going to help you out today. There's no notes on the board. You have to actually remember or write it down. But I believe in you. You can do it. But we're going to look at three things. One, what do you have? As an heir, what do you have? Another way to say that might be, what's our inheritance as an heir? Second, we're going to look at, as an heir, who are you? Another way to look at that would be our adoption as an heir. And then finally, we're going to look at, what are we here for? Another way to say it might be our mission or our purpose as an heir of God. So that's where we're going. There's a lot of stuff in there. So buckle up. Here we go. Um, So we're heirs in our inheritance in what we have from God. And don't take my word for it. Let's actually look at the passage and see what it says about this. Paul uh, is not really going for subtlety in this passage. And he starts off on a high note. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, wait, now, how many many blessings did he bless us with? How, How much was that? Every! Are you kidding me? Every spiritual blessing. Paul's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. All of it. That'd be like you have a rich uncle who dies, and they're like, he left you money. And you're like, great. How much money? All the money in the world. All of it. That's yours. Hey, have fun. Go crazy. That's what Paul is saying. In the fall and sin, when brokenness entered the world, everything got messed up. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves and others. Paul is saying all that is needed for restoration, for healing, for making things right. All of that you have and you have access to in Christ Jesus. All of it. Every spiritual blessing. Thanks, Paul. I think that's pretty good news. And thanks for the hyperbole. But he also, there's a nice little clause at the end that says, in the heavenly realms. And that would be a nice thing to maybe skip over and say, spiritual blessings, heavenly realms, sure. Um, But when we kind of discuss this as a staff, I, I think that might be talking about the fact that every spiritual blessing is a, permanent fixture. It is not subject to the whims of our world, to the life situations we find ourselves in, both good or bad. It is locked. It is set. It is secure. It is with God. It is with Christ in the spiritual realms, and it is not going anywhere, and it is 
yours. Well, that's pretty good news. That's a, that's a pretty good inheritance. Let's keep going, because Paul likes to add on and pile on things, and God is an extravagant God. Um, so we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, but as we do that, I want to say, I think one of the things that we've lost as a culture is our ability to use language well, maybe, or something that maybe is slipping. Um, Christy's an English major. She might attest to this. Her mom teaches English. I think they'd say this too. And in Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, we may not have learned the uh, nuances of communicating well and creativity, but words have meaning, and the ones God gives us are not accidental. So I want you to pay attention to a few words God uses to describe the inheritance that we're having. So in verses 7, in verse 7 near the end, he talks about the riches of his grace. And then in verse 8, that very grace, the riches of it, he has lavished on us. And in verse 6, before that, he describes the grace as glorious grace. So Paul is saying there's this glorious grace which has been poured out, which has been extravagantly lavished upon you. It's almost like Paul is just pulling out his thesaurus. It's like, I can't find enough superlatives to stack upon themselves to tell you how much grace God has for you, how much of an unstoppable fountain this is. It is like a a superlative stack of, there is a never-ending, unstoppable, unquenchable supply of God's grace that is being poured out to you right now. Well, let's go with a word picture. Go back to Niagara Falls. Can you imagine if somebody came up to the edge and was like, I think I'm going to stop that up. I can get a couple logs and stuff, and I'm just going to block it off. And we'd all say, well, we'll see at the bottom. <laughs> Have fun with that. Uh, now, some of you are going to go home and Google this, and you're going to come back to me and be like, well, it was stopped up a few times. Okay, yes, that's true. Niagara Falls was stopped up twice. Once they diverted it to the other side, that's not really stopping. They just shifted it. Once it actually, there was an ice dam formed where the water stopped for about 20, 25 hours. People were walking around underneath it. But it was a precarious situation because after a few hours, with a giant roar, the fall started again because you can't stop it. It is an unceasing flow, and so it is with your inheritance of God's grace towards you. It it cannot be held back. It cannot be stopped. Now, that all sounds real nice, and some of you might be saying, well, that's good flowery language. Have you been outside lately? Have you been in life? Or are you just like stuck in your office reading the Bible? Life's hard. How is God's glorious grace flowing to me when I'm looking at the job that I had for years is going to not exist in a couple months? What about when I am going through some of the darkest grief and struggle in my life and I'm not sure if I want to get out of bed in the morning? The ache of emptiness I feel is indescribable. Or in the relationship, when I have been so deeply betrayed, I'm not sure I want to trust anyone ever again. What God's word is saying this morning to you is that if you are in Christ, there is no situation, there is no place, dark, bad, good, ugly, where the grace of God can ever be stopped from flowing into your life, period, ever. No situation so dark, so hopeless, so despairing that God's grace will ever stop flowing to you. Now, we don't always experience it, and there's sometimes we don't perceive it, But the truth of God's word is that we can be in the darkest situations having hope. Having hope not because you're strong enough that you're going to grind it out and you are going to make it through the hard times. Not hope because you're clever enough to figure a way out of it. 
Not hope because you're good enough that God kind of owes you and he's going to take care of you. But hope because God has promised that his grace is an unstoppable, unending supply that will continue flowing into your life. It is never absent. It's an echo of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul uses these lavish terms to try to get it through to us. God's grace to you is an unending supply. Well, now you may be saying, well, that that sounds a little too good to be true. Like, okay, that's nice words, but what does it have to do with real life? Well, God's guaranteed it. That's the fun part. He's like, don't just take my word for it, but I also put my money where my mouth is. Look with me at the end of our passage. In verse 13, in him, again, talking about Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God has basically said, as a seal, a seal is something that guarantees the validity of something and the authenticity of who sent it. This is true. My word is on it. And by the way, it's a guarantee. I send you the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit, so you know what I have said. Every spiritual blessing, that sounds too good to be true. It's coming, and you can bank on it. Because I put my Holy Spirit in your life as proof, as evidence that this will happen. A full inheritance is yours. That's pretty good news. It's also very gracious of God that he has that nice little phrase in the end of the verse that says, until we acquire possession of it. Because we're not home yet. It's not fully there. And in this life, there are days we so experience the overflow of God's grace. And there are days that we're not even sure it's there. But this promise is that even now, those spiritual blessings are drawing closer and closer every day until Christ makes all things new. It is coming. It is guaranteed. Every spiritual blessing. And how does it come to you? Did you hear the language? In Christ. In Him. Every spiritual blessing, every spiritual good thing that you could ever receive has one source and one alone. And it only comes through the person, the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, period. Awesome truth, because in Christ, you have everything, every spiritual blessing. If you are not in Christ, the harsh truth is you have nothing. You don't have hope. You don't have a reason you're here. You're just biding your time, hoping to distract yourself, collecting toys, till you expire. In Christ, everything. Apart from Christ, nothing. What happens when we forget that? When we forget what we have, when we don't remember that we have an inheritance as heirs. And a lot of us, we start living like, like orphans. We start living like outcasts, which is like we have a view of, uh, of scarcity. Like, right? There's not enough to go around. And so, man, we start looking around. Okay, what's, what's the thing? What's the person? What can I find that's going to make it okay? That's going to fill that void, that ache in the heart that I experience. And we latch on and we grab onto it, often destroying the very thing that we care about in the 
process because they think this, this is going to make it okay. This is going to make it all right because we really are not sure that we believe that what God has for us is actually enough. If it's actually strong enough to walk us through both the great times and the awful times. We have this view of scarcity where everybody's competing for the same thing. So we're, we're isolated, we're alone, or we shut down our hearts saying, I am going to make myself so walled off and so strong that I don't ever feel in need again. I'm going to become less of a person. Less than we were created to be with a hard heart with which love and joy cannot enter into. That's why it's kind of important that we, for, we remember this. Because if we act like an orphan with our relationship to God, we feel like we're one screw up away from blowing it. That one mistake, God's finally going to be like, I knew it. I knew I was wasting my time with you. Drops the mic. I'm done. I'm out of here. Forget it. It's over. But when we live as an heir, we know we are loved. We know we have an inheritance. Nothing is going to take that away. It is set in Christ in the heavenly places, period. When we live as an heir, we know what we have and we live out of that freedom, that, that access, that security of knowing what God has given us. Well, we're not just heirs in our inheritance. We're also heirs in our adoption with, with who we are, with who God has made us to be. Um, and I'm going to look at a couple things. Adoption is another way of saying salvation. And we're going to look at two quick things under salvation. Why does God do it? And, and how does he do it? Well, look with me. In verse, let's start in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, there it is, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When we talk about God choosing people, God saving people, predestination, sometimes we either have an attitude of like, well, You know, God's doing it because he kind of has to. He's obligated. He doesn't like it. He's like, well, since you messed all this up, I'm going to start fixing it. But cut it out. I saved you. Now stop messing it up. Or sometimes we have this view of it. It's kind of cold, impersonal calculating. Like God in his court somewhere in heaven decided, okay, I'm going to save you. Yeah, okay, fine. This is what we're going to do. Kind of doing some eternal math, if you will. But that's not what the passage said. How does it say he predestines us? In love. Why does God save us? Because he loves us. Listen to the tender family language he uses there. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he decided to bring us from outsiders, from outcasts, into his family. In love, for adoption, and another familial term, just in case you were missing it, as sons, as daughters, As dearly loved children of God. So why has God saved you? Why has God adopted you? Because he loves you tenderly, passionately, in such a father-family way that he says, Come in, be my children. Know my love, experience it. So he does it in love. He also does it because he wants to. 
He's not obligated by anyone. If you look at verse 5 and 9 and 11, you'll hear phrases like, according to the purpose of his will, according to his will, basically because he decided to, because he's the God of the universe, and he decided, I will love these people. I will rescue and restore, because that's part of who I am. It's what I do, and I have chosen to do it. He does it because he loves us. He does it because he's God, and he says that's what he's going to do. And he does it to fill the earth with his glory. There's several clauses I'm sure you notice that talk about to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. God has done this because he is so good, he is so loving, that he wants people to know and see his goodness and to say, God, we praise you. You have saved a bunch of knuckleheads like this. Like, you, that's incredible. At great cost to yourself, it is praiseworthy. It is, it is laudable. It's like the recent news story of several, um, one English person, several Americans on a train that stopped a horrific terrorist attack. One of them got injured. We say, man, those guys were awesome. Look at what they did. That's incredible. No less so of God to look and say, that's incredible. Look at what he's done. His grace is incredible. He saved me. This offers us a really good insight. I don't know what the voices are that you sometimes hear playing out in your life. For some of us, and often myself included, they're like, really? Did you do that again? Really? That same mistake? Man, you stepped in it now. They're never going to forgive you. Man, when somebody finds out how much you blew that, you, you're toast. You're, man, you're, you're so dumb. The things that you say to yourself when no one's around, I can't believe you're dumb. You're so stupid. Why would you do that? That's not how God describes you. And that's not how this passage describes you. What this passage says is you are a blinking, shining billboard proclaiming, look at the grace of God. This is incredible. Look at my life and see Jesus. Wow. You're not worthless. You are a shining reflection of God's glory in the world that people are to take notice of. So don't believe lies. It's just bad form. So how does he do it? Look at verses 4 through 7. Read the language. Notice how many times it says it. In him, through Jesus Christ, in the beloved, there is only one way that you come to be God's children. There is only one plan, and there has ever only been one plan for you and for the whole universe, and that is only through what Christ has done. Period. In Christ, in him, in the beloved. That's it. It is the only place that you will know what it is to be his child. And it happens through his blood, through his resurrection. It happens through his sacrifice on your behalf, which we read about in this text. We have redemption, verse 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is only through what Christ has done on your behalf, by taking the punishment that you deserved, rightfully so, by taking it on himself and saying, no, 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 this one's on me. Come in, be my child. You are not my enemy, you are my friend. You are my son, you are my daughter. It's the only place. It's the only place that happens. In him. So I have some sad and hard truth for you this morning. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. I'm sorry for some of you if that's hard news, but you are not good enough You were not bad enough. You were not deserving enough. And nowhere did it list, because of Dave, I saved him. It said, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
according to the purpose of his will, because he loved. It never said because he was good enough or because he was so needy and desperate. It says because I loved him, that's why I saved him. You don't add anything to your salvation. You don't contribute anything attractive to God loving you. He loves you because he loves you, which is awesome. So if you're here this morning, I'll use a little hyperbole. Maybe you're thinking, you know, God's so lucky to have me. I'm I'm such a snazzy dresser, and I'm so eloquent, and I sing so loud and so good. And, you know, I serve people so much, man. Like, good thing I'm on God's team. Knock it off, okay? He loves you because he loves you, not because you are awesome. Rejoice and rest in the fact that he just loves you because he's God. Conversely, some of you are here this morning like, God didn't love me. Have you seen me? I'm awful. I know me very well and I don't like me, so I'm pretty sure God doesn't either. I don't think he should waste his time. I'm I'm not even really going to look up because I don't want to make eye contact with God lest I just get zapped on the spot because I know how much I suck. Knock it off. There's no place for that either. Rejoice in the fact that God loves you because he loves you. Whether you're miserable, whether you're awesome, that's irrelevant. God loves you because it's who he is, because he has done so in Christ Jesus. There's only one way that it happens, and it's at the end of the verse. So if you're not in Christ this morning, if you don't know if you're part of God's family, it's pretty simple. Verse 13 says, In him, in Christ, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. If you're not in Christ, it's not like you have to go like learn some trigonometry first before you can come in and be part of the secret club of Christians. It's a matter of hearing the gospel, that God loves you. You are messed up more than you even imagine. And you know what? You deserve God's punishment. But what God has said is no. I'm sending Christ to stand there, to take the punishment you deserve, to to live the perfect life that you're never going to live, to give you his identity, his standing as a dearly loved child of God, as a great substitution. He takes what you should get, and you get what he rightfully earned. It's knowing that, acknowledging it before God, and believing it. That's it. It's not rocket science. And you need that today. Because in Christ, you have everything. Not in Christ. What do you have? What's the opposite of being in Christ? Ephesians 2 says it. If you're not in Christ, you're dead. It's a bit harsh, Paul. Come on. You're not dead. I'm right here. You're dead to your purpose. You're dead to any sense of identity. You're dead to life and how it is meant to be lived. You, you can have taste. You can have taste of joy, of a beautiful sunset, of of good things that God has left in the world, you don't, you don't get it. There, there's no hope. You're grinding out your time and your job. You're, you're working trying to make your family presentable so nobody knows what's going on behind the curtain. Everything's fine here. It's not enough. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. You're just kind of biding your time, trying not to do anything too dumb, waiting till it's over. But in Christ, we have everything. And we remember that. We know who we are. We are dearly loved children of God. So it begs the question, how do you view yourself this morning? How do you think God views you this morning? 
Some of you have come in thinking I'm pretty awesome, and some of you come in thinking I'm pretty awful. Some of you are thinking, you know, I'm, I, am a, I am an outsider. I am a reject. I am, I am an outcast, and if people only knew, they'd see it too. The encouragement this morning is if you are in Christ, that's not true. What is true of you is that you are a dearly and costly loved child of the king of the universe with all of the rights, privileges, honors, and blessing and dignity that goes along with that. That is what is most fundamentally true of you this morning. Do you believe it? And then finally, we're heirs in our purpose. This is a really cool thing. And again, don't take my word for it. But what we alluded to earlier, according um, for, for the praise of his glorious grace, it's at the very end of our passage, the last words, to the praise of his glory. We exist to fill the earth with the glory of God. That is why we are here, and it is an awesome purpose. That is our mission. If we talk about adoption, inheritance, the family business is our business. God's business is our business, and he invites us in in the Great Commission and a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 5. God's reconciling all things together in Christ, and he gives us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. God's mission is our mission. That's pretty cool. Your life has a purpose and a meaning that's epic. So easy to forget that in the doldrums of life, in the monotony of the day-to-day. And you are here for a glorious purpose. When we talk about Orangewood's mission to make disciples to advance Christ's kingdom, I just want you to know that's not the mission of, like, the pastors. That's, that's not the mission of the elders. That's your mission. If you are in God's family, that is your mission. That's the family business. Well, he's not here, so I'm going to talk about him. But I have his permission. But one of my favorite people is Sam Huber. He also is a neighbor of mine. He lives two doors down. Sam is awesome. He's one of our young adults. Uh, and Sam's family business that his dad Scott started is Bright Light Books, which is a used bookstore. If you like books, it's an incredibly dangerous place, and I warn you now. Your wallet can leave so much lighter and your shelves so much heavier. But I digress. It is incredibly illuminating to hear Sam talk about his work at Bright Light Business. It's always in the first person. Sam will always say, we need to hire somebody for the Oviedo campus, and we're looking at a couple of candidates that we're, uh, that we're interviewing right now. Or we're hoping to upgrade our computer system so that we can process these things a little bit better. And gosh, I think if we do that, we'll be able to get intakes a little bit faster. And, or we are hoping to expand our business next year. We're going to open a new store. And it, he never says, my dad it needs to hire somebody. Uh, Bright Light is trying to up, uh, upgrade their inventory. So it's never that because his dad's business is his business. He has ownership in it. That's mine. He has bought in. He has invested. He probably thinks about it at night before he goes to sleep. Sam's a great dude. But sometimes when we talk about heirs and orphans, it can get a little bit like pie in the sky. Unless you're actually an orphan, you may not relate that well. But another way to talk about it is owners and employees An owner, acting like an owner means you have an investment in what happens. You are free to engage. You are free to risk. You are free to fail. If you're an employee, you're like, man, I better not mess it up too much or I'm like on monster.com looking for a new job tomorrow. 
How do we act with God? Do we act as like owners of the mission or do we act like employees trying to do just enough to keep God off our back so that he won't look too closely and he'll leave us alone? Or we bought in that God's mission is my mission. Like I am in it. Let's go. Let us share the, his glory with the world. Let's risk. Let's fail because I know I'm loved because I know I can repent. I don't need to blame shift. I don't have to hide. I know who I am. I know who I belong to. I know his promises are good. Employees often look around to see who else's job it is. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're like, if you've worked in retail and you see that angry customer coming in, you're like, somebody else's register. Please, somebody else's register. And they come to yours. Or in, you know, my less glamorous jobs earlier, like there's a big spill and a mess. And I'm like, that's, anybody else want to? No? That's, okay, I'll clean it. Great. An owner doesn't do that. An owner's like, that mess is my mess. I need to take care of that because this is my business. I have to look after it. What's your attitude towards God? Are you living like, like an owner in the family business or like a hired hand that he may or may not like too much and you really don't want to find out? Or somebody that you know is, you're loved, you are bought in. That business is your business and you are engaged fully. Only happens in Christ. If we live as an heir, we know what we have. We have an unmovable inheritance. We know who we are. We're dearly loved children of God, and we know why we're here to take part in the family business of filling the world with how awesome God is. Well, back to Harry Potter. I won't spoil it for you if you haven't read it. You've just got a delight in front of you. But Harry eventually meets Hagrid a lumbering half-giant of a man who tells him who he really is. No, are you kidding me? No, you're a wizard. This, this is your identity. This is who you are. And he introduces him to an entire community of belonging. This is who you are. These are your people. This is where you belong. Your life has significance, meaning, and purpose, and it changes everything. All of a sudden, he's able to engage in some of the most difficult arduous task possibly imagined because he knows who he is. He knows what he's doing. He knows why it matters. What about you? Can that be said of you? Are are you living like an heir or have you forgotten who you are? Have you started believing lies that, that aren't true about you? Everything you need you have in Christ. He is not stingy. He is a generous God who has given you everything, every blessing. He's not holding back on you. Do you believe that? Do you live as if that is actually true? And if you did, what would that look like? What would it look like to live with that level of security, that level of assurance that you know who you are and you know nothing, no life situation is going to shake that? It'll be hard. But you know who you are. You know what you have and you know it's not going anywhere because it's guaranteed by the blood and the life of Christ. Can't really beat the guarantee. Don't be content like Harry to live under the staircase, settling for scraps. When a life of significance, of identity, of value, and of mission is held before you in Christ. Would we live as if that were true? Because it is. Pray with me. God, you are extravagant and you promise things that sometimes hope is hard and you promise things that seem so good. Sometimes it's almost scary. Could we really believe that's true? 
Could you really love us that much? Could you really have promised us every spiritual blessing? Are you sure you meant that? God, give us the courage. Give us the daring to believe that this is the true story. That all the stuff that's thrown at us, all the lies, all the deceptions, that we would see through it and we would see truth and we would live out who you have said we are in Christ, that we would see you for who you are as the extravagant, giving, loving God. We ask for that knowing that only you can do it. And we ask for it in Christ. Amen.